And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. All right. We read last week about the day of Pentecost, which was when the Lord poured out the Holy Spirit in power upon the church and sparked what you could call the first Christian revival. <laughs> it wasn't really revival, it was just a vival, I guess, because <laughs> it was the first one. But, you know, when we talk about revival in the church, often we're talking about getting back to what happened in those early days. And most movements in the church, capital C Church, have been born out of some kind of revival or other. And not all, but I think many. I think you Look at the Protestant church, for example, was born out of the Reformation where the Lord revitalized the church. The Methodist movement came out of John Wesley and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield and the Great Awakening. And Calvary Chapel was born out of the Jesus movement, which happened in the 1970s and continued from there. If you don't know about this, we'll talk about it a lot as we, the longer you're here, you'll hear more about it. But this is when God brought countless people to Jesus through the ministry of a little church in California, which was called Calvary Chapel, hence the name. And I, as I said, I was with the other pastors this last week, and when we come together, and we're all part of the same thing, and we're fellowshipping with each other, often what's done is we, we try to remember, and I have a little trouble remembering more than most because I wasn't there during the 70s, as you can imagine, but to remember what the Lord did and to rehearse some of the stories and to, more than that, rehearse the lessons that were learned during that time and try to remember that this was a day when the Lord was moving and it was very obvious what God was doing so what can we learn from that time that we can continue right now? We're going to talk about today. You can't always continue things that are entirely the Lord's doing. Sometimes God will move in certain ways and sometimes he won't. But there are certain things that you can continue to do. The early church, as we're going to read throughout the book of Acts, and maybe we'll throw some church history in there a little bit later because the story kept going. But they turned the world upside down without resources, without programs, without buildings, without seminaries, without the internet, without books or tracts. They turned the world upside down. And we look at this and we go, how did they do that? And of course, we know the Holy Spirit empowered them. But they also set an example of the things they were doing that we can imitate. My favorite professor from back in Bible college, his name was Dave Early, and he's a pastor elsewhere now. But... He used to talk about the early church or he'd talk about some famous pastor or some amazing thing that God had done in the church. And he'd say, if you want what they got, you got to do what they did. And then he would usually go on to start talking about prayer because that was his favorite thing to talk about. But it's true. If you want what they got, you got to do what they did. We're going to read throughout this book about many wonderful things that God did through the early church. But all of it was born out of the foundation that was being laid in these verses here. The things that they were doing that enabled them to be ready for God to use them. The behaviors that they, they participated in. The attitudes that they had. We can't duplicate people stealing Paul's sweatbands and taking them home to grandma and she's getting healed when she touches the sweatband. 
I can't duplicate that. I'm not going to write a book on it. There's no seminar you can watch. That's God at work. But there are things that you can duplicate and that you ought to duplicate and you ought to imitate might be a better word. Paul would say, imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? Imitation of godliness is a good thing. And my old church used to teach on this passage about once a year because it is from this as much as from anywhere else in the Bible that we draw our philosophy of ministry as a church. So we're going to look at this. There's a lot of uh, broad application that can be drawn from this, but also it will explain to some of us and to some of you why we do things the way that we do because we are trying to be in obedience to what we see here. So let's start in verse 42. We'll go back and we'll go a little slower. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, your Bible might say doctrine, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. This is the first of seven summaries that Luke will give throughout the book of Acts. When you hit a milestone in the book of Acts, when something wonderful happens, Luke will give a, a section like that where he summarizes what was going on. They usually end with, and the Lord added day by day those who were being saved. So we're going to see a lot of these as we go through. But this is the first one. And remember, this was right after the church had grown from 120 people on this day to over 3,000 people the next day. What do you think that staff meeting was like after they baptized all those people? Imagine baptizing 3,000 people. It's like, well, I don't know if they had time to give a specific word to each one or if they just had to form a line and dunk them all one at a time, but there was 12 of them, so I guess they spread it out. But I'm sure they were tired. I'm sure they were fired up and they were ready to go. And then the 12 get together. I'm sure they brought in some of the others from that 122, and they look at each other and they say, okay, now what? <laughs> What do we do? And obviously they're going to continue and they're going to lead and they're going to do the things that God told them to do. But they say, how do we teach these people? How do we lead them forward? And what we see here is what they agreed would be the best course of action. And without boring you with all the Greek, with each of the things that we read in this passage, Luke uses what's called in Greek an imperfect periphrastic construction. That is to say, they were doing things. So the ESV says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. If you want to translate that, straightforward it would be and they were devoting themselves and verse 43 and all was coming upon and wonders and signs were being done and all who believed were being together and were having all things in common it's that ongoing language and it's it communicates that this wasn't something they did once or for a while this was the energizer bunny they kept going and going and going and doing this so Greek is important. It will preach. Some people will tell you that it won't, but it's true. They were continually doing these things. Every one of these verbs in here, and I'm not going to draw out each one, but just keep that in mind as we go. But the first thing that they devoted themselves to, that word for devoted, it means to continue. They were continuing in. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching or the apostles' doctrine. The twelve apostles began to teach just as Jesus had taught them by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had told them in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, the Great Commission. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That, that verb, make disciples, is the operative word in the Great Commission. Make disciples. How do you make disciples? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I command you teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus was a teacher. 
You see that throughout this, the gospel that we read. They would call him teacher. They would call him rabbi. And that's what he did. He would go around from place to place. It said he healed the sick, he cleansed the lepers, and he taught them. He taught in the synagogues, he taught on the plain, he taught on the mountain, he taught out in the wilderness. And everybody came around him, not just to hear the miracles, but to hear his teaching. And it is so easy for the church to be derided for spending way too much time preaching and teaching. I'm sure I've told this story before, but there was a man who ran a food bank in Virginia, and he used to come to our pastor's meetings, and he said one time, to this group of pastors, he said, you all focus way too much on preaching and teaching. He said, you spend all your time studying during the week. He says, all the studying has been done. Just download something from the internet and read that because you should be focusing on feeding the hungry. And he went on to describe all the things that he was doing. And uh, that was very rude of him and way out of line. But you hear that sometimes. Why do they spend so much time teaching? Don't they know that there are hurting, hungry people? You've heard that, I'm sure. But the Bible places a strong emphasis in the church on teaching. Because if everything comes back to faith or to belief, then what you believe matters. If you believe that God is good and God will empower you to do the right thing, that's going to change the way you live. And if we don't know those things, it's going to change the way we act. And we're going to see in Acts chapter 6 that when the apostles were approached with the opportunity to do something else, they said, no, we will devote ourselves to teaching and to prayer well, then who's going to feed the widows? And they say, you do it. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But there's an emphasis here. The first thing was teaching. And we are very far removed from the apostle's voice, right? We can't go and find Thaddeus and have him teach us and have him come out and speak at the men's conference or something like that. And if you read through early church history, Eusebius, who's the first church historian, would talk about the value of what they called the living voice. It's a really cool thing because it was unique to that generation. How they said, yeah, we, we love reading the Bible, we love reading the letters of Paul, but we want to find somebody who was still there, somebody who was alive and met Jesus. And these guys became in high demand as the persecution arose and then also as they got older. And it's just a really neat thing to me to read that. that there was a time in the church where you could write a letter to an apostle and he would come to your church. How amazing is that? Well, we don't have that. So what do we do? Lucky for us, the apostles wrote down and preserved their doctrine in a bunch of books that we compile together and call the Bible. So we commit ourselves to the systematic teaching of God's word. And here at Calvary Chapel, we teach verse by verse and chapter by chapter. Is that the only thing we do? No, but that's the main diet. That's the main thing we're going to do. I've heard it said to me before, don't teach from the Bible. Don't teach about the Bible. Teach the Bible. And I love that. And that can look a bunch of different ways. If you're not teaching verse by verse, that doesn't mean you're not teaching the Bible. But that's the way that I've grown up being taught how to do it, and I have not seen a better way. I think part of that is because there is so much biblical illiteracy in our time. Even people that have been in church forever, and they, they don't know the word. People that would come to seminary, and they, I would talk to them, and they're ready to be pastors in a year, but they haven't even read the whole Bible. Or even myself, I'll read through something, even today, in the Psalms or Proverbs or something, and I'll look at that and I go, how did I not know that was in there? So we commit ourselves to teaching what it says. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8 gives us a great example. It says that they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. They read it clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. That's what I try to do every week, to read it clearly and to explain it so that you can understand it. And 
there are other ways that people will do this. There are people that want to focus on certain topics. We've done some of that. There are people that want to focus more on drawing out the life lessons of the passage than about teaching what it says. Look, I, I, I remember a guy in one of my classes, my preaching class back in school, he said, well, if you teach verse by verse through the Bible, aren't you going to like miss a bunch of stuff? It's like if you're in Matthew for a year, you're only getting like one lesson. And that was partly because the professors had drilled into their heads that you have to find out what the author was saying. What's the purpose of this book? And I had to write a thousand essays on what was the purpose of Jude or the purpose of Galatians. And he had it so drilled into his head that if I teach Matthew, I can only teach one thing. So if I teach it for a year, that's 52 weeks of the same thing. And my professor, who also taught verse by verse, who's not a Calvary guy, he's a Baptist guy, but that's what he did. He said, I'm willing to bet you've never heard anybody teach verse by verse before. He said, because I've been going through Matthew, said, and we've talked, this week we're talking about the gospel, this week we're talking about divorce, this week we're talking about lying and truth, and this week we're talking about eschatology, it's all there. And I would rather show you over a long period of time what good Bible study looks like so that you can then go and do it for yourself, and you can draw the life lessons out for yourself. I feel like that way I've equipped you to handle the word of God and you're not dependent on what I have to say. God forbid that would ever be the case. When a man knows God's word, it changes him and it changes his behavior. I don't need to stand up here and try and craft a perfect sermon to get you to do the right thing. The word of God is already living. It's already active. It's a sword that pierces to the division of soul and spirit. So uh, I believe it was Charles Spurgeon, and I know Martin Luther said something similar, but they said, I don't have to defend the Bible. It's like a lion. I just turn it loose. <laughs> just let it go. And that's what I try my best to do is to get as little filter between me and the word as possible. And until there is nobody left on earth who will ever say, I've never read the Bible like this before. Until I stop meeting those people, we're going to keep doing this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Secondly, they devoted themselves to fellowship. This is the word in Greek, koinonia. This is a good one to know, koinonia. It comes from the word koina in Greek, which means common. If you've ever heard koine Greek, it's common Greek, which is what the Bible was written in. It wasn't written in the elevated uh, classical style. It was written in common language, and so that's where this word comes from. The idea is that as long as we have Jesus in common with one another, all the other distinctions fall apart. And you know this, as we come together here, we come from lots of different walks of life, lots of different places, backgrounds, whatever, but we have Jesus in common, and that's enough. And so the church was in fellowship. They were together. We read that a bunch of times in this passage, don't we? They were together. They were continually together. Why? Because you become like the people you spend time with. If you've ever had kids who get past the little cute age where they think you're Superman and they think everything you say is the greatest thing ever, all of a sudden they come home and you start asking them questions like, where'd you learn that from? You ever ask that question? Or say, who taught you that? When did you start talking like that? When did you start dressing like that? When did you start getting interested in something like that? I, I've seen this in my own life. When I was growing up, I remember it was a guy who ended up becoming my best friend. And so this is kind of an ironic story, but the, we went over to their house and he was a year or two older than me and he was a big-time music guy, and he says, so what kind of music do you like? And I didn't really have much of a I said, I like everything except maybe heavy metal. He goes, what? You don't like metal? And immediately he pulls out his CDs, and he starts playing them, and we start listening. And before too long, me hanging out with this guy, I got really into that really heavy-sounding stuff, and the people sounded like they're throwing up into the microphone and started going to the concerts and all that. And I remember my dad asked me at one point, he goes, when did this happen? <laughs> I said, what, what, do you, what CDs would you like for Christmas? And I told him, he goes, when did this happen? Because I was spending time with him, I started to 
get into some of the things he was into. And that's a kind of an innocuous example, but it can also lead you to some really great places, can't it? If you're around great people, they will elevate you. Proverbs 27, 17 says, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. It literally sharpens the countenance of his friend. That when we're together, we lift each other up. The converse of that is true though. If you isolate yourself from the church, you're like a gazelle that says, I don't need to run with the herd to be a gazelle. I can be a gazelle all by myself. That's great, but the lions are going to get you, aren't they? You'll be picked off, and I don't think you'll come out the better the other side. Or if even more so, if you're hanging out with people that are bringing you down. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. There can be things you never in a million years would have ever considered as even a possibility, as something you would ever do or be around. And then you start hanging out with somebody, and before too long you start to think, you know what, I don't really get what the big deal is. Why did God tell us not to do that? What's wrong with that anyway? People will acclimate to the temperature of the room, so to speak. And this is something we need to be aware of as a church. When we come together in fellowship, this church can either be like a refrigerator where you walk in, and the temperature starts to go down. You walk through that door and you're zealous and you're fired up for Jesus and you're ready to go and you're, you're like wanting to share the gospel with people and you want to know everything about the Bible and the minute I unlock the doors, you're trying to push past and get inside. And if you come in and this place is a refrigerator, everyone's kind of looking at you like, would you just calm down? That's quite enough. And it starts to cool off and everybody kind of settles down. Or it can be a sauna. Zach and I were in Russia a few years ago and... They, they call it sauna. You've probably seen this. A lot of cultures have, but it's a dry room with a dry heat. They got all these heated up rocks in this big wooden room, and you pour water on the rocks, and it got hot in that room, you guys. And then what the Russians do is you're supposed to leave, and then you take a bucket of ice cold water and pour it over your head, and it's supposed to God, cleanse your pores or something like that. I don't know. I was actually sitting in it with Pastor Pasha, who you guys maybe will meet at some point, and we were, everybody's kind of getting out and being done. He goes, hey, Tyler, let's see how hot we can get it. And... We got that sauna. I do not lie because I remember he said, let's see if we can get it over 100. 100 Celsius, not Fahrenheit, okay? He says, let's get over 100. And so we're, we're pouring water on this thing until we see the thermostat go 101. He goes, okay, let's get out. <laughs> so we were past the boiling point in this room, and then we get out and pour ice cold water on, and it was, it was something else. And when you go on mission trips, there's always a few people that are afraid to try all that stuff. You got to do it. It's, what's, it's what, part of the fun. The point is, you can be like that, where somebody comes in, and maybe they're not used to that. Maybe they're not ready. Maybe they walk in, and they're like, why is everybody so excited about Jesus here? I know Jesus. I've known Jesus my whole life. I don't see why we have to be so excitable about this. This is crazy. Okay, yeah, we're supposed to share the gospel, but it doesn't mean I have to do it every day. But you stick around people like that after a while that just get fired up for the Lord and want to study the Bible. It's going to start to lift you up a little bit. So we've got to be not a refrigerator. We've got to be a sauna in that sense. When people come in here, that they're lifted up to get more excited about Jesus and more enthusiastic for the word. This is why we try to facilitate us spending time with each other. This is why when the service is over, we don't rush you out. This is why we have small groups. This is why we're having a Christmas party. This is why we allow time for fellowship before the service begins. We're a community. We're not clients, right? We're not coming to oh, I'm going to show up and then they'll give me what I need and then I'll leave and then that'll be that. And it's like this transactional thing in church. No, we're a family. We're a fellowship because we have Jesus in common. Number three, they were devoted, it says, to the breaking of bread. And actually in Greek, it should be the breaking of the bread. 
This is a reference to communion, the Lord's Supper, the table of the Lord, whatever you want to call it. And we're going to apply that more broadly to worship in the church. That English word that we use, communion, actually comes from the same word that I just mentioned a minute ago, koinonia. It describes encountering or having fellowship with God. And Paul in 1 Corinthians will talk about not eating meat sacrificed to idols. He says, you don't want to have fellowship with some false god. You want to have communion with the Lord. It's about encountering God, worshiping God. And this is what we want to do. Ephesians 5, verses 18 through 20, Paul wrote, Do not get drunk with wine. For that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And this is how he describes being filled with the Spirit. Check this out. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible commands you to sing to the Lord. Isn't that cool? (laughs) Make a joyful noise to the Lord, it says. When you're filled with the Spirit, it's like there's a song coming out of your heart. You ever be so in love with somebody like, I wish I knew how to write poetry. I'd love to write a poem. And then you try and you throw it away and, you know, you don't ever give it. And you just say, hey, you know what? You look really nice today. And that's the closest (laughs) it gets. But when the Holy Spirit fills you, he puts a song in your heart. Music is very closely tied in the Bible to the presence of the Holy Spirit. There's an amazing story when Elisha was asked where the kings were supposed to go. And he says, bring me a harp. And the man began to play the harp. And then the Holy Spirit came upon him. It's a very interesting tie between music and the Spirit. In the Old Testament, David organized singers and choirs and instruments. And he invented new instruments to be played in the temple. And you actually read in some of the parts of the Old Testament where they were lamenting that the instruments that David had made were gone and they didn't know how to make them anymore. Worship, is, is all worship singing? No, but it's a, it's a significant part of it. This is why we take the time to sing together, to declare who God is, to praise him for what he's done. It, it jogs your memory of what the Lord has done. It builds your faith and it engages, get ready to gasp, your emotions. I thought worship wasn't supposed to be emotional. You didn't read that in scripture. I know what people mean when they say that. say, well, we shouldn't be so emotional that we leave behind what we already know about the word of God. But you are a whole being. You are emotional. You are intellectual. You are spiritual. You are all those things. And when we have music and we're singing to the Lord, it stirs your spirit a little bit. It can stir you to grief for things that are happening. It can stir you to joy. It can get you excited. And then you're supposed to take that and channel it in the correct direction. Right? The Bible says that the Lord is full of joy, that the Lord was full of anger, the Lord was full of grief. So if the Lord experiences emotions, then we should not look down on them. We just don't let them drive the boat. You understand what I'm saying? That's what worship is for. And here's something that is specific to us here, not just us, but because worship music can be so different depending on the tradition and depending on the culture, we are not married to any one style or form of worship. And I think that the worship of a certain church should be born out of the people that are there. Who do you have that is playing up there? That, what instruments are playing up there? And if everybody's into a certain style and this is what they do, you don't want to make it so specific that only a few people can get into it. And you've got this weird niche worship that, you know, all, people come in and they snap their fingers at how cool it is, but nobody else can get on board. But in the same way, it's like, who's there? And, and this is something we did back home where we, were, we came out of California. We were very used to what I do here, contemporary worship with acoustic guitars and everything. And we moved to Virginia. People down there, not all of them liked that. So my dad comes to me as the worship leader and he says, I want you to start doing hymns every week. 
Sprinkle them in. Do a couple of each. That for me, I had to go out and learn some hymns because I didn't know any. But it's different, and, and it just depends on who's there. And we never want to be so tied to the way worship is done that we miss the whole point, which is to give God glory. We need to be flexible and unselfish in our worship. And this can be young and old. This is not that group. Not, oh, those, those silly millennials always wanting things their way. Or those silly boomers that refuse to change. And it's all, I, I've been a worship leader was for many years, and I heard both complaints. It's too loud. It's not loud enough. Too many words. Not enough words. Too much doctrine. Not enough doctrine. It's all about me. It's not enough about me. I've heard everything. In a lot of ways, it makes you just want to say, I'm not listening to any of you, but that's no good either. <laughs> we need to be unselfish in our worship. If you can come in and hear, I don't care if you like the song or if you don't like the tune, is it giving glory to Jesus? Then you should be able to get behind it and praise the Lord. Every revival in history has a history of new songs springing out of the hearts of people. Isn't that interesting to think about that? Kind of every wave in the church of new music often has come out of some revival that the Lord has brought about that people just get so overwhelmed and so excited they just start to sing. They start to use what they have and what they know to give glory to God. So we don't want to be any, any different from that. We want it to be for the Lord, not just for ourselves. And worship is not the previews and the end credits of the movie where you can skip out and skip traffic if you want. Oh, good, we're done. No, we're not. If we're singing, we're responding to what's been done. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, to worship. Fourth and finally, they devoted themselves to the prayers. Why does he say the prayers? Probably he's referring to the prayers, the hours of prayer that happened in the temple. There were three hours of prayer, morning, noon, and night. You're supposed to come to the temple and pray. So probably that doesn't have to be specifically that. The idea is that the church was praying. We're going to see in the next chapter that they were going up to the temple to pray, and the Lord interrupted the routine, and it was pretty great. Do you remember? Jesus identified the character of his house with prayer. Matthew 21, 13, when he's cleansing the temple, he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. My house shall be called a house of prayer. And I love the way Jim Cimbala always puts it. My house shall be called a house of prayer. Preaching, yes, but not my house will be called a house of preaching. Singing, yes, but not my house will be called a house of singing. Taking care of the poor, but not my house shall be called a house of taking care of the poor. A house of prayer. The early church was born, or really the whole church was born, out of a prayer meeting. Ten days of prayer, and God sent the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. We should do 11 days of prayer and see what the Lord chooses to do. Y'all, there is so much pressure on the church to do, do, do. And I like to make jokes because people will come in and send us emails and write books and about their, their topic that the Lord has given them a heart and a ministry for. You know, I'll just use an example, a very common one that you hear is people want to talk about people are depressed in the church and we need to talk about mental health and about joy and about peace and all that kind of stuff. Very important topic. But I remember telling one woman who was so passionate about this, and this was her ministry that she did as she worked for this parachurch group. I said, listen, God has given you that ministry, and you're passionate about it. And she said, because she said, you should be talking about this at least once a month. And then she mentioned something else that I should be teaching about at least once a month. And I said, I'm running out of weeks in the month here. <laughs> That's your thing. You are excited about it, and God has given you the passion because he wants you to do it. My dad said one time to a guy, you can afford to have one string on your guitar, <laughs> to have one thing going on. Everybody wants us to do, do, do. Well, your church is not doing this. How can you call yourself a church? 
People will complain about the lack of amenities in a church. But the one thing that falls by the wayside most often is prayer. Rarely are you going to find a church where they don't sing. Very rare to find a church where they don't preach. Very rare to find a church where they're not going to have some form of ministry or other, or they don't have some cause that they get behind. But it's not that rare to find a church that doesn't pray. Isn't that, isn't that a shame? Jesus faced the same pressure in Mark chapter 1. When Jesus, his first big day of ministry in Capernaum, people were lined up outside the door all night, getting healed after he healed Peter's mother. Super early in the morning, he's exhausted, and what does he do? He goes up into the wilderness to pray. Next morning, the disciples are all excited. It's day two. Here we go. Where's Jesus? People are showing up at the door. They want to get healed. They have questions. They want to be taught. Uh, we'll go find him. Where is he? He was right here. He's gone. And then finally, they go out to the mountain, and they find Jesus praying. And they said, uh, teacher, everyone is looking for you. It's like, hey, uh, we should get back there. There's a lot of work to do. And you know what Jesus said? He said, let's leave right now. We're going to leave right now. We're going to go on to the next town because I've got teaching to do in these other towns. Luke 5, 16, it said that Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and what? Pray. If there was anybody who had a busy schedule, it was Jesus of Nazareth during those three years. But he said, I'm willing to make everybody angry and even ghost them in the middle of the night so that I can get away and pray. That teaches us something, isn't it? We are to be a church that prays, not just individually, not just before the service, not just before the meals, but together. Because we are spiritual people called to do spiritual work, and you need spiritual power to do that. You can't skip prayer. Ah, oh, we're running out of time. We don't have time to pray. No, you need to pray if you're running out of time. Because if the devil finds out that if he can keep you busy, you'll never pray, guess what? You'll never have an open slot in your schedule ever again. You can't let the enemy pull the plug on the church. That's what prayer is. So these four things, teaching, fellowship, worship, and prayer. Those are the tasks to which the church has been set. These are the four things they were doing. Everything else we're going to see springs out of that. This is what the church must be doing. And like my teacher said, if you want what they got, you got to do what they did. Every one of those things is duplicable. We can do that. We can pray. We can teach. We can worship. We can fellowship together. We can't control what's going to happen after that, but you can at least start by laying the foundation well. Well, when they were doing these things, let's see what happened in verse 43. And awe, the Bible might say fear, came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So this is what happened as a byproduct of those four things. If you will do these four disciplines that have been given, this is what you can expect by faith. Can we always control these things? No. But if you pursue the Lord faithfully, we have a reasonable biblical expectation that we will see these kinds of things start to happen. Starting number one, I'm going to break this up into two things. The fruit of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit. First it says, awe came upon every soul. The first expectation, the fruit of the Spirit. That as we do these things, there will be a transformation of character within and without the church. That as we pray and teach and fellowship and worship, our character will start to be changed by the Spirit of God. It says there was awe that came over all. The Greek word there is phobos. It's where we get the word phobia from. So it is literally fear, but some of the newer translations like to put awe because it's not that Peter walked down the road and people were hiding in the doors. It was the fear of the Lord, a healthy respect of who God is. 
Proverbs 1 verse 7 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9.10 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We start with that. So you can see that even people outside the church are being brought along in their understanding of who God is. No doubt influenced by the fact that they were performing these miracles. God's there with those people. God is in their midst. There's parts in the Old Testament where God would do something amazing. And then it said that people were overcome with fear because God had been among them. God was right here. He was right here. And they were afraid because they think, what was I doing? What was going on? What could God do to me? When we pursue the Lord, when we begin to wait on him, God begins to act and that changes people. This is why we focus on those directly spiritual activities most of the time. Because we want to encounter God and he begins to work among us. He begins to draw people to us. And as we read in Galatians 5, we begin to see that fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We come together as a church to be changed. You can't change yourself. Go ahead and try. You probably can think of a thousand things you've tried to change about yourself, and here you are still exactly the same. But you know what? God can change you. God can change us. In a dedicated community of people who regularly encounter God, you will be changed, and that character will start to be borne out in our midst. The fear of the Lord all the way down to self-control, the last fruit of the Spirit. But not only that, the power of the Spirit So we had four tasks that the church engaged in. Now we're on the second expectation that we can have if we will engage in them. The power of the Spirit. We expect that if we do those things, the Spirit will manifest Himself in our midst. Again, something we can't control, but we can expect. You can't control the character of people, but we can expect that as they're around, God will change them. We also can't control the power of the Spirit, but we can expect that as we pursue the Lord faithfully, we will start to see the power of the Spirit at work. It says signs and wonders, and very briefly people want to say, ah, see, signs and wonders are being done through the apostles. This is not something for anybody else, it's only for the apostles. As we continue through the book of Acts, we will see that it says Stephen performed signs and wonders. He wasn't an apostle, he was a deacon. Philip performed signs and wonders. He was a deacon and an evangelist. Paul and Barnabas performed signs and wonders. This is not something that is restricted to the apostles. We do not believe that God has stopped doing miracles through his church. The Lord told us that these things would persist until the end. Remember last week? These things are for the last days. And if they were in the last days, we're in the last, last days. Paul would write to the Galatians. Paul is trying to make a doctrinal point. This is so cool. He's trying to prove to them that salvation is by faith, not by works. And he says in Galatians 3 verse 5, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He refers to the miracles going on in their midst and says, those were happening before in that passage you were circumcised, so why do you think you need to be circumcised to receive the Holy Spirit? He's using the miracles in their midst to make a doctrinal point. It was that common or at least that notable in the church. And now I will say that During seasons of harvest or seasons of revival, you could call them, the works of the Spirit tend to increase. I think sometimes the Lord just pushes in the church. And the Lord uses that to bring people back from the brink. The Jesus movement, the Great Awakenings, things like that. And during those seasons, there are people and there are are meetings where it's just happening all the time. And then over time, it starts to fade away. But it does not go away. And we should not cop out to then say, well, when revival comes, yeah, sure, why not? 
No, we don't do that. The more you draw near to the Lord in prayer and the word, the more you are around faith-filled people who believe in the power of the Spirit, you're going to start to lose the faithless nature of the world. Most folks out there, they scoff at the idea of God working miracles in the church, which is why we fellowship together. And we need to make sure that the temperature is such so that people will acclimate to faith in a God who still works miracles. Not so we can see a show and talk about how great we are, but so that, as we saw, fear will fall upon all and more people will be saved. Wouldn't you love to have the reputation? It's like, you go up there, God's up there, man. God's in that little building. You go there, you're going to meet God. We cannot control those things. We cannot make them happen. It's not like you sit there with your flint and you're trying to start the fire. The Lord's the one that's got to start the fire. But you know what you can do? You can make yourself a clean vessel that God can use. You can present yourself as available to the Lord. And Luke eleven thirteen says to ask for the power of the Holy Spirit, as we did on Wednesday night. If you do what they did, you can expect what they had. These two expectations, the fruit of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit. Both of those things. It would do me no good to stand up here and berate you to be a better person. I can't change that. Me yelling at you might make you go home and, and mind your P's and Q's for a while, or you're just going to get angry and find somebody who's not going to yell at you. So it's no good for me to sit here and be a better person. I can't control that. Only God can control that. And it would also be wrong for me to get up here and say, why aren't you working more miraculous healings at work? Like, what, what good is that? What is yelling at you going to do? But you know what I can do? We can be led towards those tasks that the church was doing, prayer, worship, teaching, fellowship. You ever read about this in, in business or something like that? They call them process goals, which is there's not really an end point. Like, you know, we, we might say, for example, we want to have all the fruit of the Spirit active at all times. Okay, how are you supposed to do that? It's not like you can go, okay, patience, patience, patience. Here we go. Got to get some patience. Work up the patience. That's weird. <laughs> We're not going to do that. But you know what you can do? You can work what are called the process goals, which are we are going to come and pray together. We're going to come and study the word together. We're going to fellowship. We're going to worship. We're going to obey the spiritual disciplines as a church. And we believe that as we work the process, so to speak, that God will do the work. Moving on to verse 44, down to verse 47, the first part. And all who believed, this is so cool, were together and had all things in common. There's that word again, koina, for koinonia, fellowship. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. We'll pause right there. This is, this is such a cool little story. And I'll say this, when the Lord sends a season like this, like a revival or a harvest, you could call it, there are a lot of really neat things that start to happen spontaneously where people do lavish things like this in order to please the Lord. What then happens, unfortunately, is when that season starts to fade away, as they do, and I think you could almost say as the Lord wills it, People start to find that those really cool, spontaneous things that were happening out of the goodness of people's hearts aren't happening as much. So now we start to make rules to force and coerce people to keep doing those things. That's no good. We look at this passage and they, they begin to sell their possessions and give them to each other. It, we could say, all right, if you're going to be part of this church, you've got to sell everything you have and put it in the, in the bank and we'll all distribute it with each other. That's not, that's not any good. All right? But you know what we can do? We can duplicate the heart behind it. What was it that 
drove them to do that. Can we do that? Yes, we can. And I see in these verses three character traits that the church ought to have, three characteristics of the church. And they apply to us as a, as a fellowship here as well as to the church with a capital C. The first thing, which we see in verse 44, is all who believed. And I'm going to stop after those four words. <laughs> all who believed. Everything that he says from verse 44 on is about every Christian in that church. It's also the first time they were called believers, which is a pretty cool thing. First time you see that in the Bible. They were all involved. Everyone who believed participated. This first characteristic, the first character trait the church ought to have is participation. The early church, we kind of get a picture in our mind of these you know, snug little communities where everybody's sitting around the table and just, you know, rocking back and forth and arms around each other. There were 3,000 people on day two. 3,000 people. And you know what was so effective about that? People will say, big churches are no good because if you got a big church, it's, everybody gets lost and nobody can find each other. And I, I always thought that was funny. I, I didn't come from a big church myself, but I remember getting on one of my friends. His name was Richie. I hope he listens to this and remembers this story. But he said, you know, I'm thinking about coming to your church now. I said, hey, that'd be great, man, but, you know, you've kind of been going to the same church for a long time, a big church back in Virginia. And he said, yeah, but it's just so hard to get involved and meet people there. I said, how is it hard to meet people at a church with 10,000 people? They're everywhere. Why can't you meet somebody? I said, you can't tell me there's no way for you to get in. I used to give him a rough time about that because he was, he had, there were other reasons he wanted to leave, and that, that was not it. But the thing is, what made this church so effective, even though it was big, it was mega church size, 3,000 people in a city that barely had twice that, okay? Everyone was involved. That's what made it so special, is that everyone participated. They didn't show up and say, okay, what are we going to do today? They showed up and they said, here's what I'm going to do for the church today. Here's who I'm going to love. This is what I want to contribute. I was reading this in my Bible last night. I want to come and share that with somebody I want to have some people over to my house so that we can pray together. I've never met them. Let's have them over tonight and let's pray. They were all participating. David Rosales is a pastor in Chino Hills, California. I love this story. Somebody came to the church one time in California and they said, well, we, we like the church. We're just uh, you know, here to see what you, what you have to offer us. And David said, really, I should be asking you what you have to offer us. I'm not here to give you anything. This is a community of people where we come together and we all contribute to what's going on. We all contribute. Church is not about what you can get out of the service. That's the wrong way to look at it. It's about what you can contribute to the people around you. My job is not to do the ministry. You're the pastor, Tyler. Yes, it is. No, my job is to equip you to do the ministry. Ephesians chapter 4, God gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for what purpose? To equip the saints for the work of ministry so that they can build up the body of Christ. Pastor is very similar to a quartermaster in the military. His job is to make sure everybody's got everything they need to go out and do their job. And the soldiers are the ones that go out and do the work. The church's job is to minister which is why if you come to me and say, hey, Tyler, I really would love to have a ministry to homeless people. I say, hey, me too. Go for it. No, no, I want you to do it. No, that's not how it works. If God gave you the heart and the burden, why doesn't Tyler have a heart to reach this group of people? Because God's already given you the heart. Tyler's job is to make sure you have everything you need to go and pursue that. That's what the church is. 
Christianity, y'all, is not a spectator sport. Get off the benches and get in the game. Because, you know, we don't know how many days we have left. Jesus could come back in three days. I don't know if I'm ready. How much, how much did these people know? These 3,000 people that got saved. They knew Peter's message in Acts chapter 2, and that was it. They operated on what they had, and they went forward. And the Lord filled in the gaps as they went. Participation. Getting involved. Getting in the game. Every believer did these things. And what did they do? The second character trait we see here is love. They sold their possessions and provided for all the needs in their midst. And those words for possessions and belongings, the word in Greek is ktemata. And it specifically describes properties, lands, and estates. So if you want to get real specific here, what was happening is the nobles, the nobility, the wealthy who had land, whether back home or in Israel, they began to sell that stuff and distribute the money to anybody who had need. A lot of guys think that what would have happened was these people who had all come for Pentecost from all around the world, they stayed in Jerusalem. So who's going to take care of them? And you all know today it can be just as difficult for a Jewish person to believe in Jesus and get removed from their family. You know what's happening to them. So who's going to take care of those people? And so those who had assets and resources began to sell them so that there would be no need in their midst. That's love, you guys. That's real love as a verb, acting out what it ought to be. Wouldn't it be a shameful thing for us to have people in our midst who are living in poverty and barely scraping by while some of us are living in luxury? be a shameful thing for us when we have the ability to do something for somebody and instead we're just accumulating for ourselves. Deuteronomy 15 verse 4, God told the children of Israel, he said, I'm giving you these laws and he was talking about the tithes and the gleaning in the fields and you weren't supposed to uh, harvest in the corners. He said, so that there may be no poor among you. He says, you're my people. I don't want people to look at my people and think they don't even take care of each other. Would not be shameful for us to have that? Oh, the early church thought so. All of this spills out from Jesus' teachings on money and materialism. And as you saw throughout Luke, the biggest thing that we learn from that is money's not a thing. We don't look at it as anything other than a tool that maybe can be used for good or bad, so make sure you use it for good. And if you lose it, who cares? You've got treasure in heaven. Luke 6, 38, Jesus said, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, any attempt to coerce this kind of behavior totally robs it of its spirit. This is not a biblical endorsement of communism. Okay? And it sounds so silly, but there are people that that's where they want to go. And so, you know, the Bible says this is what happened. And especially in a lot of Latin American countries, this is a very common lie that's peddled to a lot of people. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7, Paul said that the Lord loves a cheerful giver. He says that you ought to give not under compulsion, right? But whatever you've purposed in your heart. And this is broader than just money. I'm just trying to explain about this passage here. That there was such an overflow of love in the early church that this is what it looked like. And every revival and every great move of the Lord, you've got stories like that where amazing things happen and people showed remarkable love to each other. Things that God never commanded them to do. We're going to see in Acts chapter 5. Peter's going to make very clear. God didn't tell you you had to sell your stuff. So what are you lying about it for is what he's going to say there. But we should, in our midst, cultivate such an attitude of love that we don't even covet our own possessions. That kind of love for each other, that we can love each other with the same love that Jesus loved us. And we see that lived out through the way that they sold their possessions in this passage. 
And the third characteristic I see here is faithfulness. So participation, love, and faithfulness. See this in verse 46. Day by day. Greek, that means according to the day. Each day, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Faithfulness. Every single day. They would go to the temple and worship. Then they would go back home and keep going. Every day. Notice, by the way, they worshiped in the temple. We're going to see this as a theme throughout the book of Acts, which I won't really develop right now, but it was a big question they had. How Jewish are we still? (laughs) It was kind of the question. And you'll, you'll see this in chapter 15 especially, and then at the end of the book. But they were still worshiping in the temple, and they were not wrong to do so. The early church did not abandon Israel. God didn't abandon Israel. And the Jews didn't abandon Judaism. The question became, are we going to make these Gentiles become Jews too? And the answer was no, of course not. This would actually continue until they were expelled from the city of Jerusalem just before Rome came in and destroyed it. How do you think these priests felt? Because what you could do, you could come to the the morning, afternoon, and evening prayers, and there would be a sacrifice, and the priest would pray, and then he would give a blessing. How do you think the priest felt? All of a sudden, there are 3,000 Christians showing up for every single one of these things. Oh, there's a lot of people out there today. It's the Christians. It's the people of Jesus. What do we do? Caiaphas is going to get mad. Well, we have to do it. It's time. We've got to go. All right. And then day by day, they're still here. They're still coming every day. Three times a day, here they come. Devoting themselves to the prayer day by day in the temple. How do you think those priests felt? I'll tell you because we're going to read later on that it said many of the priesthood believed. And I think this is a huge testimony. They saw this every day. You know what? You can say whatever you want about Jesus, but the people that believe in him are the ones that worship and pray and bring offerings to the Lord. They're the ones that actually care. So maybe there's something to this. And then at night, they would share common meals together. Very common thing for people to say, you know, the early church didn't have buildings. They had a house churches. First of all, they were meeting in the temple. Yes, they did have a building. Second of all, most of the churches were too small to have a building. And then after a while, it became illegal for them to have a building. And then as soon as it became legal, they built buildings. All that to say, to, th- to say that the trappings of the church are somehow sinful is not biblically or historically accurate. But they did meet in their houses an awful lot. Usually people are going to say that. It's because they have a model of ministry they want to push on you. Because back in the day, it was, how big can you get the church? Mega churches. And then now it's like, how small can we get the churches? Micro churches. And, you know, back and forth it goes. And I'm perfectly content just to walk right down the middle of that. And it's great when we're small. And if the Lord makes us big, well, praise the Lord for that too. But they would share common meals together in each other's houses an awful lot. They spent time with each other faithfully in the temple and at each other's houses. That's a lot of commitment to the church, isn't it? How do you like to... Come up here three times a day. And then when you're done, go to dinner after the evening service with the people that are here. I don't even like all them people. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Now look, as a church, right now, what we're doing, we have Sundays, we have Wednesday nights. We're going to be starting up our men's and women's groups again in the beginning of the year. I'm looking forward very soon to getting a Sunday night thing going. Um, That's not a ton. And we're small. And this is about as much as we, and, and mostly I, because of my work situation and other things, about as much as, as I can handle. But as things continue, I hope that we're doing all kinds of stuff together. That, you know, I can't come to everything. You don't have to come to everything, but we're all together. That we're, we are seeing the Lord move in, in this group or that group. And that we have ministries to the men and ministries to the women. And then maybe we shift it up. And now we're going to have just groups in the houses. And then we're going to have things here. And we're going to go on mission trips. And we're going to have conferences. And we're going to have everything. I, I, the Lord is going to do all that. Can we do it today? No, that's fine. But the Lord is going to bring that about. 
I want us to do much, much more together. Spending time with each other outside of this building. It shouldn't all be stuff that I am curating for you. We'll do a lot of that, but a lot of it should just be spontaneous. Hey, we met together and we prayed. You don't need my permission to do that. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, how to raise the temperature in the room so that we're all acclimating to a hotter fervor for the Lord, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I don't have to go to church. You are commanded to gather together with the church. Really funny how we try to justify things like that. We need to be among the church, faithfully, not just here but in each other's homes, becoming friends with one another, strengthening one another. Well, I just don't know anybody there. Well, Proverbs says, he who desires to have friends must first show himself to be what? Friendly. And y'all are great. Y'all are great at this. You guys just love and hug each other, and I don't have to make anybody do that. It's wonderful. Keep it up. But if you want to see the life of your family, your life changed, you've got to be faithful. Faithfully gathering together, faithfully participating, faithfully showing love, faithfully praying and studying the apostles' doctrine and worshiping and participating in fellowship. Long obedience in the same direction. That's where miracles come from. So we've seen four tasks that the church engaged in, which was the teaching, fellowship, worship, and prayer. And then there were two things that we could expect if we participate in the same thing, which is the fruit of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit. There are three character traits that we're supposed to cultivate based on this, which was participation, love, and faithfulness. I hope you can see so far there is a cost to following Jesus. A cost of character, a cost of time. It's absolutely worth it, though. Now I'll see the last thing here, the mission of the church in verse 47. We'll just read the whole thing. They were praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The last thing we see here, Their high standards, the calling that they participated in, the love they had for one another, the joy with which they worshipped, it was attractive. When we worship the Lord, when we seek the Lord and do all these things, we naturally will become winsome as a church. Now what you can do is you can say, oh, see, they had favor with all the people. Here's some doctrines that we have, and the world doesn't like that, and we're supposed to have favor with all the people. So if we eliminate all that, now we have what we're going for. Don't do that. That's called affirming the consequent. It's a logical fallacy. It's like if you say, well, that famous man, that famous rich man has a really, really fancy car. If I buy a really fancy car, I will become a famous rich man. It's like, no, you've got it backwards. He has that because of what he is. You don't do, do it the other way. It's the same thing in the church. Well, they did all these glorious things for the Lord, and there was favor with all the people. Don't chase favor with all the people. Chase the other stuff, and the favor will come if it may. Sometimes the world will change, and they'll demand that you change with them. We don't do that. But when we cultivate godly character, commitment, love, sometimes, and I will say often, people will be drawn to us before they're drawn to Jesus. And that's biblical. We see that, where people just love us. And they might even come, I don't even know if I believe all this stuff, but I just love being here. They love me here. They take care of me here. They talk about things that that challenge my thinking. And look, we're always going to be trying to draw people to the Lord, but... There's room for people to be drawn to us before they're drawn to the Lord. And we do end with this last principle, and this is important, that ties into what I just said. The Lord added to their number, day by day, those who are being saved. The Lord added. God builds his church, not us. 
You are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Hey, Peter, go off and build a church. He said, I will build my church. God builds his church. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6, I sowed the seed, Apollos watered the seed, but you know what? It's God that gives the increase. A healthy church is a growing church. But hopefully we have growth through what's called multiplication instead of addition. If there are folks coming from other churches that are going to be fed here, amazing. I love that. I'm not going to get down on that. I want to see this place filled up, though, with dirty, rotten sinners that have found Jesus. I want to have that kind of vibe where people walk in and they hold their children a little closer. Look at all these people. I don't know about all this. I don't know if this is the kind of place we want to be. And then we start singing and you see that those people that are maybe a little rough to look at, they're in love with Jesus Christ and he's totally transformed their life. Day by day. Man, I want to see people get saved every day. I'm serious. I get fired up about that. Like, Lord, I want to see people get saved every single day where we just get used to it. Where we finish up and I finish praying and people start lining up. I need Jesus and we start praying for them. And then we get so used to the Lord working and moving that people come up and we're praying for them to be healed. And they're healed in the, in the moment. And people are coming and getting rid of all their stuff. Like we're going to read stories in the book of Acts where there was a revival among the witches in a certain city. And those were the people getting saved and they got all their magic books and they put them in a big pile and set it on fire. And it said the rest of the people in the town kind of like steered clear of the church for a while. How cool is that? The Lord's like, I'm going to save these people. I'm going to reach out to the people that will listen to me. I want to see people get saved every day. But you know what? That's another one of those things that I can't control. I can't go out there and shake somebody by the collar until they follow Jesus. That's not going to stick. In case any of you had that idea, I don't think anybody did, but don't try that. But you know what we can do? We can stick to the basic tasks of the church. Teaching, fellowship, worship, Prayer. Can you add to that list? Yeah, maybe. But these are the ones that are in this passage here. And I think those are always true. If you want to build the church yourself, you're going to have to strive to maintain what you strive to attain. If you build it yourself, you've got to fix it and keep it there. But if God builds it, guess what? No one can shake it. The Lord can build a city that nobody can touch, that nobody can assault. As long as you can keep our greasy paws off of what the Lord is doing. Let the Lord work. And that's what teaching, fellowship, worship, and prayer do. They give the Lord room to work. So we pray that as we do those things, and we are doing those things, that should excite you a little bit. We are doing these things. Can we do them more? Sure. But we're doing them. So if we can continue in those things, we have to expect that the Lord is going to start to do some great things in our midst.